Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. An educator friend of mine, Kyle Huntley, talks about sexual orientation and gender identity of his students. We talk about the importance of holding space, even if that space isn't well attended. We also talk about his relationship as a settler-descended person to the indigenous people on whose land he works and lives. His use of cultural centers to enrich the education he provides, I think, is quite laudable. The recent uncoupling of specific content to teaching objectives allows him to now use queer and indigenous content to teach the same lessons, to teach the same learning objectives. Kyle shares the version he was taught of How the Raven Stole the Sun, a story I very much enjoyed listening to. If you're looking for resources and live in Vancouver rather than the valley where Kyle lives, you can check out the Musqueam Cultural Center or look at their teaching kit online for stories. There's also tourism, so you can go and look at, I think it's Talese Tours, the Speaking Treasures Tour in Stanley Park, or the Talking Trees Tour. I also posted a whole bunch of resources for trans folks in relationships that might be abusive or same-gender folks that may be in relationships that are abusive. So all of that is available at intimatepodcast.com. And now let's go to the session with Kyle Huntley talking about educating without holding space for colonialism. Yeah, I know it's just Kyle Huntley. If you just say Kyle, that's fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're good with the full name or? Either or. Okay. Yep. So I welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Kyle Huntley. He's an educator. Um, and I'm super interested to talk to you about various things today. Your work with Sogi um, at the um, institution you're at, talking a little bit about decolonizing, talking a little bit about um, how you teach Indigenous culture and your relationship to that as a parent as well. So let's start with you as an educator. Um, tell me about your work with SOGI and GSA and what those stand for. So I've always been part of the GSA, which was originally a Gender Sexuality Alliance. Now it's the, or sorry, it used to be the Gay Straight Alliance. Now it's the Gender Sexuality Alliance because, of course, over the years that has broadened in meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and SOGI is the actual district side of it. So that's the mm -hmm. BC has set out um, various resources and other things. And SOGI is the... Um, the acronym that is all of the things that they're offering us, uh, videos, right. resources, etc. As for my work as an educator, uh, I started at another larger school helping out with it. And you are there as a gathering point and a mediator between the students that need that resources or are unsure or questioning or understand their identity, but don't necessarily have a space of their own. Mm -hmm. So that offers them that space while still having the educator adult there to make sure that it is safe and stays that way. That's awesome. Um, I really like the idea of holding space. I think it's incredibly important, even if you don't have a lot of people attending. 
Mm-hmm. Just the culture of knowing there is a space is a form of normalizing and it encourages acceptance and it's just a whole bunch of good things, I think. Which is the goal primarily and making it um, more in the face of things. Um, students are encouraged to do whatever they feel like in the school. Whoever they are should be expressed. Mm-hmm. Um, we do this sometimes in the form we paint ceiling tiles to match the different identity flags. And those are dispersed throughout the school. Uh, we're oh, hoping to get cool. three done this year. Awesome. Um, and eventually we'll make our way through uh, the whole, as many as we can, that's appropriate for a, a, a school. Yeah, that's that's great. I like the idea of just sort of scattering them here and there. So, mm-hmm. you know, people look up and they're reminded that that there is at the very least acceptance on an institutional level. And hopefully that trickles down and promotes a culture of tolerance and kindness, if nothing else. Always kind of the major goal. Yeah, I definitely have experiences from high school that were not so kind. So <laughs> most of our around my age, which is around 30, yep. is most people my age and around that say very similarly. I, I think remember... we're born in the same year. Yes. We're both 86, right? Uh, yes. Awesome. So it is a, and yeah, we, I always hear the, um, the, the slurs, the mm-hmm. using gay as an insult or mm-hmm. as to mean dumb. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily the same now. It's kind of evolved in how it's being used, but the problem's still there. But it, no one my age, I don't think, has had a positive uh, <laughs> non-binary identity experience, experience. As, a, as a youth. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I also identify as some flavor of non-binary. I've, I've kind of got to the point where I I don't need to identify as as not a cis man when I'm dealing with other folks who are super non-binary because I recognize how much masculine presenting privilege I've had just in how much easier it is to blend in if I choose, even though, you know, I've currently got my nails done. And when I go out to events, sometimes I'll, you know, do lipstick and things like that. And occasionally, if I'm really feeling up to the, the time commitment, eyeshadow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know we are going to get into masculinity a little bit later, but definitely as I aged, I engaged more in non-traditional masculinity as a young person. I definitely was Mm -hmm. afraid to do many things I wanted to do. Or if I did them, I did them in the sense of a a punk makeup or a rocker makeup, which was the only forms that were really acceptable for Mm -hmm. a young man uh, when I was younger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got called gay in school all the time by tons and tons and tons of people got called you know fag faggot all those all the all those you know anti-queer anti-sogi essentially sort of terms yeah and they're very destructive not yeah. just in the sense that the most of the kids who use them don't actually understand what they're saying right. they've learned this from another set another person or another environment whether that's media or home but they when you really get down to them and have them explain what they're truly trying to say in direct language a lot of times they have no, they didn't even make the connection. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And as I have had multiple students that when I, when they say that's so gay or whatever it is, um, I ask them, what do you mean by that? Can you explain that to me? And they'll be halfway through explaining it to me. And then all of a sudden their eyes kind of open and go, Oh, and suddenly they realize why this isn't okay. Right. And it, in many cases, they don't even put two and two together because no one's challenged them. That's really cool that you're able to have those conversations and hopefully like, pull a little more of that like vitriol out of the out of the culture normalization education understanding and making them know that straight's not standard right cis is not standard Mm -hmm. and having it more predominant uh is important and i of course always get the oh how oh why are you throwing in our faces god they just it's they just want to shove it down our throats and i 
early in the semesters, I tend to pull up information about how many straight couples were on in movies this last year. Right. Because there are people who run those numbers. And thank you so much to those people because you make my job <laughs> way easier. Right. Um, versus how many non-binary couples, how many uh, queer couples, how many various aspects are actually presented in media. Now, mm -hmm. those numbers aren't perfect, but they do give me an idea. And in most cases, the straight cis identities and couples are well over the hundred mm -hmm. where the other any others combined tend to be under 20 right so we have a significant differential and that being shown to a young person who's going oh why are they shoving in our faces right often helps them realize that it's not being shoved in your face right you're just not used to seeing it mm -hmm. and if i only show you red bricks and then there's suddenly a blue brick that blue brick stands out right in a in a large way and they're not sure how to deal with it at young age. Cognitive dissonance um, is very complex. And for young people yeah. going through enough already, not all of them know how to handle it. And pushback is the most common reaction. Mm -hmm. And that's why we hopefully have well-equipped educators to assist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose in many ways that is, that is the extension of the job. May mm -hmm. not be in the job description necessarily, but it certainly is a, a, an opportunity that you have to make a difference. Educators are definitely not just curriculum pushers. Mm -hmm. We are trained and designed to be more. Uh, not everyone embraces that fully, and it's not necessarily required to be embraced to the extent that some people like myself embrace it. But I'd rather someone turn 19 and be a functional, kind adult mm -hmm. than um, know some of the finer aspects of conjugation. Sure. Sure. Because these are really important skills for kids to be learning. They're functional skills. Yeah. I really like that as a, speaking of red bricks and blue mm. bricks, rubrics, uh, yes. <laughs> like being functional. Mm -hmm. um, that is a great word. I really, really like that word. You mentioned, speaking of being 18 or 19 and being a functional adult, that when you were 18 or 19, you were a, a, you fully embraced being male rights activist and had all those sorts of values. And I'm super curious to hear about what that culture was like for you and how it impacted you. I definitely grew up in a what was attempting to mimic what we call a nuclear family. Mm -hmm. My father was very masculine. Um, my mother was very feminine, even though she was also a prison guard <laughs> growing mm -hmm. up and mm -hmm. um, very much a powerful woman. Um, she was very feminine. So I came up with these ideas in my head and that certain things were how they were supposed to be. And that because I was a strong young male, I was supposed to be certain things. Um, I was a reg uh, wrestler rugby player. Um, I did martial arts most of my life. I loved, um, conflict, <laughs> so I, to speak. I can certainly see you as a wrestler, as a rugby player, as someone doing martial arts. They all seem like contiguous with the types <laughs> of activities you've been in. Absolutely. And I, I love fighting under safe conditions. Mm -hmm. As I say, I don't like real fights because real fights hurt people, mm -hmm. but I do love that fight feeling. And growing up, that was very, um, core to my identity. I was also a nerd a geek. Mm -hmm. I love tabletop wargaming, D&D, video gaming, sure. which was very male dominated when I was younger. I know that number has somewhat equalized out nowadays. Or at least been moving in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 getting there and it's being acknowledged. Um, but the, the misogyny in, the, in those cultures is definitely being more acknowledged, I think. Yes. Yeah. And it was there in great number and yeah. in the forefront when I was young and yeah. experiencing that. By the time I was about 18, 19, I believed that the pushback from feminism and other things were not in Ben's interests. 
Interesting. That is absolutely untrue. But it took me a number of years after to um, realize that. And it took some very patient people in mm-hmm. university, mm-hmm. Um, some very angry people <laughs> uh, to talk to me. And I was shot down a number of times through different scenarios. And even though at that moment, my cognitive dissonance hurt mm-hmm. and was very shattering in some ways, it was good. It is what helped me realize that what I believed and what I thought was not acceptable. Right. But I was what we often call the edge lord. <laughs> I like to play devil's advocate. Got you. And not in the sense that I was trying to actually promote um, learning, learning and, and conversation. I did it because I wanted to push people's buttons. Right. And again, not what is okay. Right. Because there are plenty of venues where that is totally fine in BDSM, for example. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> there's tons of fun kink scenarios where you can consensually push people's buttons, where you can essentially get that trolling fix, but but through predicament play or something that's just like <laughs> really fun that, that even the people in the predicament are really enjoying being put in these like really crappy situations. And they have this really interesting like adventure or struggle alongside you. And at the end of that, you get closure and you get healing. And if anything, there's been connection through that difficult experience versus, you know, tackling someone who's talking about something identity related, which can be very core and extremely emotionally invested for them. And coming into that as a person with no emotional investment, it's very easy to troll or push someone's buttons. Huge. But in a way that there's a power dynamic because that person's emotionally invested and you're not. Well, there is, there's the the, the investment that for the most part, I don't have a huge invest or I'm not personally invested in a number of things. Mm-hmm. Some I am, but some I'm not. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the kink scenario, yes, you can do some horrific things to people. Sure. But there is there is an order of things. There is a conversation. There is consent. There is borders. And is there soft and hard limits? And when everything is said and done, we have aftercare, right. which is agreed upon. In a social scenario, in a forum... Yeah. we're going to yell at each other or be angry and talk about hot topics. We don't have a precursor. We don't set out soft, hard boundaries and we do not have aftercare. That's a really good observation. And that's what makes it when we leave that form of discussion on hot topics, just being a troll, what we've done is we've left that person with some kind of various level of trauma from the poking and we are not caring for them. Yeah. It would be different if I had a very hot, heated conversation with a close friend. Sure. And when we were done and we did disagreements, we cooled, we hugged, we did something that we care about each other together to mm-hmm. reaffirm that though we may disagree, that we may be upset right now. But you're still okay. We're still okay. And yeah. I don't know how many situations you can do that reasonably, mm-hmm. but you don't see that in those discussions. Yeah. Yeah. I agree completely. Mm-hmm. Great. Just trying to think of a, of a good segue to the next question. That's a good segue. <laughs> that is a good segue? Just talking about I think so. a segue? Okay. All right. I like segues. They're perfectly balanced. They're great. I mean, the engineering that went to them is fantastic. I, I love how talking about segues is the segue. Mm-hmm. I, it's almost like you're an educator that does this frequently. <laughs> you're like, how do I get to point C from point B? I have never given a presentation in my class that didn't involve memes and the children love it. Yeah. It, it, it connects them in a way that's humorous. and. Mm-hmm it's effective. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think effective education, I think that that's the whole point, right? It goes back to that functional analogy. I always 
thought that the way we did things, I hated the stuff growing up. It was mm-hmm. so dry, so boring. I, it's much better when you have fun while educating. And things like history, which are known as the driest of subjects, sure. is way too cool, yeah. way too interesting, and way too weird to be as boring as it is. Yeah. History is crazy. There are tons of ways of connecting with history, too. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of which, yes. <laughs> um, you were telling me about how you're decolonizing de- the content that you're using to educate, how you're essentially shifting the framework from this very Eurocentric um, colonial, I guess, I can't think of a better word. You would, could probably think of a better word. Yeah. Tell me more about decolonizing education. So I came across this word um, just before my teacher's program mm-hmm. where I had a fantastic professor who really shook me to my core. They gave me evidence and information and subjects that were, I don't know how I could go most of my young and young life and adult life without knowing these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it absolutely changed my view of the world. And they simply showed the truth about what happened in Canada with Aboriginals. And I was aware of it to a small degree, but it was never made as clear as it was through this one, these two classes I ended up taking with her. So it was about a year straight with this woman. And just to clarify, she was First Nations. Yes, she is. Yeah. She is a First Nation of the universe that I got my degree and she was, she herself was, and I don't know how much of a better educator I could have hoped for. She had a way of engaging you that never put you off. um, You always felt comfortable, well, uncomfortable. Right. And it was fantastic. Like there way. was space for you to exist <clears throat> while holding space for reality. Like yes. <laughs> what happened without having um, anything sugarcoated. Absolutely. And that masterful level to reach that. Um, but what she showed me was that I had gone my life without reading Aboriginal content. That there are Aboriginal novelists, there are Aboriginal playwrights, there are Aboriginal poets, there are Aboriginal movie makers, TV yeah. makers, all forms of media that that you don't really realize how every day um, everyone is mm-hmm. and how much we ignore many groups. Aboriginals probably in the largest sense is we're in Canada, um, probably one of the largest groups that get that. And Yeah, I would say they're probably the most marginalized yes. racially. Yeah, Huge. And it is, that broke me down to a, I, this is something that can actually be helped like mm-hmm. on the side that I'm not Aboriginal. However, I am going, I have a lot of privilege and that can be weaponized basically to break down these bad structures. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- when I went into my teacher's program, again, with the new curriculum in our province, Aboriginal content is, at, is being pushed and this is great. So not only do I have district backup, I have educate uh, my program showed us ways of decolonization. And it's mm-hmm. a simple mm-hmm. thing that when we read literature, it's almost all dead white guys. When sure, we learn about sure. history, the people who wrote that history were dead white guys. Mm-hmm. And periodically we had dead black guy. That's really the extent. We don't get much else. Sure. And especially in our scenario here where we have a massive um, Indian Peninsula and Sikh influence, um, we really talk about the Kamagata Maru and then we never mention it again. Mm-hmm. And that is a massive disservice to how much of our nation has been contributed by these ver- by various groups. Mm-hmm. So with that, to decolonize is to give, is to start spreading out the time that you give to the various groups. Sure. And to all of the Canadians. To all the Canadians, exactly. And, and for those of you who don't identify as Canadian, if you're Indigenous, for example, 
I apologize. That was not meant to be exclusive. Absolutely. Yeah. If you are, if you don't count yourself Canadian, the self-identity thing is huge. Sure. You all, all the folks on Turtle Island. Yes, sure. exactly. That's a good way. I love Turtle Island. Um, it is a, so when we break that down, it's, we always talk about straight white guys. We always talk about cis. We always talk about the European influence. Whereas instead, we start talking about the cyclical nature of certain aspects of um, Coast Salish. Sure. How you identify the changes of the seasons in science. Mm -hmm. And though we might have the more modern context now, sure. when we compare that to the, um, the Stolo way of doing it, or one mm -hmm. of some of the Stolo ways of doing it, because mm -hmm. obviously it changes as you go, they're as accurate as some of the modern science. Sure. And that recognition, showing that, those signs that you can, you can actually look to nature. Mm -hmm. and get answers look to the earth and see the things that we wrote about in books but you don't actually have to just learn from a book that you can see it that's cool and um one of my colleagues uses the sprouts in that there is a writing from coca education center that show that at a certain sprout setting or when the sprout reaches a certain level mm -hmm. you know the salmon's about to run interesting scientifically as they looked at this because it's an education center they found that that's accurate basically for 10 years straight that's cool recognizing that in science that this is science yeah it it's, works. it's based on biological principles that just happen to be synchronous mm -hmm. that's great and in the english setting um looking at it's graphic also, novels it's also really low effort like if you think about it once someone figures out these cool relationships that's so incredibly useful mm -hmm. um, <laughs> for making sure your people remain fed <laughs> yeah and we we talk about um, understanding of the world generally from, well, I know things, therefore I know things, versus I know things and here's how it affects us all. Mm -hmm. And it's cause and effect versus I just know things. Right. And that is very much more of an indigenous way of thinking than a European way of thinking, which sure. is I know things, therefore I'm better than you. Um, right. There, <laughs> there tends to be that, that sort of um, elitism that we've kind of inherited from that colonial heritage. Very much so. Um, and it's not good. It's not helpful. Uh, and it is, it, I think it really manifests when you see um, adults who know many things, but struggle to actually do many things. Totally. I think it relates very accurately to our whole generation and the notion that so many people have a degree and yet have no idea how that is ever going to be monetized. Not that we need to necessarily dip into capitalism and <laughs> how that um, impacts everything, but it does impact everything. And like you said, like there, there's a lot of knowing things for the sake of knowing things. And if you find that really interesting, I'm all about people having the freedom and opportunity to learn all these awesome things just because they want to learn them. But I agree that especially when we're talking about career training or setting people up for the rest of their lives, it's important to know how to do things. Absolutely. It is a we need to have be more than just regurgitating books of knowledge mm -hmm. and as I've some people who point out um, that, oh, well, I know all these things, therefore I'm smart. It's like, well, not to downplay a person's knowledge, mm -hmm. but I have a cell phone that literally has access to the sum of all human knowledge in my pocket. Right. I don't need to remember every little detail anymore. Mm -hmm. What I do need to do is be able to recognize patterns, mm -hmm. see signs before the signs of things about to happen so I can prepare. I need to be able to react in an intelligent, effective, kind way to things. Mm -hmm. If I can't do that, all my knowledge isn't very useful. Right. Like how to critically evaluate that knowledge, mm -hmm. how to strategically use that knowledge. And again, that ties back in with doing things. <clears throat> 
and to tie that back into the decolonization, yeah. a lot of the literature, at least from what I've read, mm-hmm. um, from the Aboriginal um, contents I've found, does play into very dark senses of humor, which seems to be a common trend. Mm-hmm. Um, and it pokes fun at things that are very have are very hurtful and damaging to the to the various cultures and the areas that these stories come from and they use humor to bring up a reality it makes you think of the old concept of the jester the jester's funny because they're right mm-hmm. if they were if they were poking fun but it's wrong it wouldn't be funny but we recognize these sure. things. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, the Red Sisters, where the one character is incredibly um, excited to have a toilet, to have a running water toilet that her husband put in poorly, okay. and that this gave her a sense of elegance and and <laughs> pride over everything else. And that pointed out that a lot of reservations still don't have running water, still don't have paved roads. Right. And at the end of the day, the only reason they don't is because the government hasn't done it. Because they were required to do it via their own act. They're supposed to have had this stuff done 40, 50, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. They still don't. Mm-hmm. So this very humorous conversations between these three uh, women, uh, call themselves the Red, Red Sisters in this sure. play are really pointing at some very serious problems. Mm-hmm. And when we, when I've used that play, um, the students think it's hilarious because it is quite funny. It's, it's very quippy. It sure. actually reminds me in many ways of some of the Monty Python skits. Interesting. How they're, they're, they're playoff of words and they're, they're super serious faces while being very ridiculous. Right. But they are pointing at real things. Mm-hmm. And the, it gave me a, a, a sense of that, but in this Canadian Aboriginal content. Mm-hmm. And or context, yeah. Context, sorry, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And when we talk about it, when we go into depth and we start digging in, mm-hmm. and my students are forced to read the Indian Act in its entirety. Oh. Yes, it's very dry. But they start realizing, why is this not done? Right. Like, how are we still using something called the Indian Act from so long ago? And how are we still in this crazy dichotomy of claiming you know, that this is Canadian land, but we aren't going to build any infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's really strange that it's not even like, here, we'll give you the stuff to build infrastructure or we'll support you in the following. You know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like, well, this is all Canada, except it's not. It's just this weird, I don't yes. even, it's, it's incomprehensible to me how ineffectual our relationship as Canadians, as settler descended Canadians is with Aboriginal folks in Canada. I, I just, it's incomprehensible to me that we can have diplomats keeping better relationships with people on the other side of the world than we can with people on whose land we're living. And it only takes you to look in any, any year, there seems to be something. Yeah. And drawing that in and showing that this isn't a long time ago. Right. It wasn't that long ago that residential schools ended. Right. It was not that long ago that the Oka crisis occurred. And we have almost, I swear, every year I'm hearing something on the news or on the quiet news because not everything reaches the big of news. Course. Well, currently it's the Unistoten camp that the RCMP yes. is occupying. Yeah. And I know our prime minister was supposed to be the glory boy. And he's not. And it started off really promising. And then he nationalized the pipeline just because legislation wouldn't allow private companies to do the kinds of garbage that we're now doing as yeah. a government. And that is bringing up to that making students look at, and I have made them make arguments, persuasive essays sure. on on how you would present that same pipeline to, say, sure. Richmond. 
Absolutely. Or some of the rich areas in Burnaby or these areas here. It's how would you convince these nice, quote unquote, rich areas sure. to take a pipeline? Yeah. And most of them can't figure it out. And this is actually an intentionally failing um, project. Yeah. That they, they're going to have to become very convoluted right. and tricky and yeah. underhanded and some of them get very creative cool. well, some of these little ones are quite sinister <laughs> and, <laughs> and it is a this is what you had to do right for established colonized cities right let alone some of these quite out of out the middle of nowhere reservations that have very little support in the grander sense right um and why they always seem to end up through those zones. Um, I know someone looked it up that the, um, the, all the reservation land in BC is about the size of Vancouver Island. Sure. How can we can't get a pipeline around that? Yeah. It's a small area, but yet they keep running through. And to, or again, bring back the decolonization, yeah, that's challenging really students to, that's really good point. to answer those questions really causes them to think about why things happen. And, mm -hmm. I find it that when I get the students in the younger grades and I see them again later, um, that questioning has grown mm -hmm. and they seem to be very aware when it starts young and yeah. it's not a judgment. We're not angry at these kids or that they come from certain backgrounds. It is a, how come, why do you think this is happening? Right. In the world at large around you. Yeah. It's not like they're decision makers running the country or the province Absolutely or not. these companies. But they yeah. will one day be. Sure. And that's why I think it's important that these things are brought up, whether it is intersectional um, feminism, whether it is um, people of color and uh, different ethnic groups being brought in with the same weight in education as the um, colonial European sense. Sure. And that when these people are no longer with me, they are eventually going to be managers, bosses, CEOs. And if, they've, if they grow up thinking that what they are is the only thing, we're going to have the same problem again. Mm -hmm. And that that does start in education, that you can't mistreat people. Mm -hmm. You can't... Um, certainly not without consequences. No, and that consequence needs to be made real. Mm -hmm. And the more you humanize, mm -hmm. the more you make real these, what is commonly referred to as the others. Yes. You, they stop being the other. They start being an us. Mm -hmm. And that makes a huge difference. And that's how I, when I talk, uh, one of my favorite introductions is... Um, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. And, <laughs> and I introduce, when I talk to my whole class or even the larger groups in the, uh, in the gym setting when, we have a, when I happen to be the speaker, yeah. um, that is how I engage everyone. That mm -hmm. is my, my default group introduction. And most people laugh because it's something you don't hear much. But there are at least a third of my student body is likely non-binary in some sense of the word. That's a large fraction. That's more than I would have thought. And, well, I, I honestly think most of the of us, are, most of the world, is actually much larger than. I mean, essentially, admit. sure. And and also making the point that once gender isn't binary, people tend to fall somewhere on that spectrum, and it's really rare that people fall a hundred percent at one polar opposite, where they eschew everything on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, when you consider what the true aspect of what a spectrum means, yeah, most of us do not sit on any extreme. Yeah. The vast majority of us are somewhere in between. Yeah, like a bell curve. Huge. Although I think in the case of gender, it's probably not a bell curve where most of us are completely androgynous. I would say it's probably <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe an inverted bell curve or something like that. But even yeah. that doesn't seem like it's doing justice to the folks in the middle. Cause. No, and that very much the there's the um, 
the gender uni- unicorn became very popular a few years ago. Yeah. And it's, it's functional, but mm-hmm. very simplified. Yeah. But it was the first image to recognize intersex so as an ident- as a as a biological aspect. I didn't realize that. So like the the it's pronounced metrosexual images, all of those ones were not the first image. For sorry, say again. Oh, I'm um, sorry. I just there's um an image it's pronounced metrosexual, the genderbred oh, person. Yes. Um but it's of course um a straight cis guy. <laughs> it's essentially like here, we should all be more tolerant. And like, here is some information on how to be more tolerant. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether it was the first or not, but there's been a lot of feedback, um, or at least there have been at least two people, I should say, rather than a lot of feedback. There have been at least two people who are non-binary um, who have said, it's kind of upsetting when it's not a person who's non-binary giving you the information because it lacks a certain authenticity. Even though this information seems right, it's probably better to promote someone who's not for-profit, promote someone who's not you know, a cis straight person for profit profiting off of. At the same time, it's just another person doing work to encourage learning all these things, even if it is appropriative. And that you brought in a lot, a uh, big point that mm-hmm. what considered an ally. Yeah. That allies are a great resource mm-hmm. because we have privilege mm-hmm. to basically push back in ways that some yeah. groups struggle to because yeah. they get coined as these different um, negative things whereas sure. you don't have to and it's yeah people almost will listen in a way that they won't if you're from they're like oh well, of course you're saying that you're one of those people and it's that othering again exactly and that the it's the job of the ally not to be the voice but to basically make a circle to hey look this is this is my space Right, I'm then, pointing at this voice. I'm helping lift up this voice. Yeah, and you you bring that person who isn't in that space in, and you go, yeah. hey, I can come here. Yeah, I shouldn't be talking for you, but I can help your voice be heard. Be heard. Yeah, and I think that's the most effective use of an ally mm-hmm. is to one speak out against mm-hmm. when someone says something that's unacceptable. Yep, and two empower those who want to speak. Yeah, and I've had this very um, heavily in my identity in that. I consider myself a cis hetero male, but when you actually break, when you get more in depth into my identity and how I look at things, I'm cis het, but the, the majority society would not say that about me. Right. So that puts me in a weird position sometimes that I'm not this, I non-binary or these other, or having a complex sexuality. However, I do. But society disagrees. It's more like a perspective thing, I think. It is. And it's that's... like when I wear makeup out in society, people think of me as really non-binary or other gendered. And, and to some extent, I am. When I'm in a space with people who have had various surgeries, when I'm in a space with people who are on hormones, when I'm in a space with people who have really complex relationships, perhaps far more complex than mine, I have no need to take up that space. It's, it's important to sort of acknowledge, like, why am I taking up this space? Is this space made for me? And do I need to be here? And if I'm having a really hard day where I felt really invisible because, you know, folks in family or folks, you know what I mean? They've, they've, I'm sure you know, I'm seeing some, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing that nod. I, yeah, you, you, you feel me. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's once you've had that, that feeling erased or invisible just because people haven't acknowledged who you are. Sometimes it's nice to be in that space and just be like, yeah, I had a really hard day for these reasons. And just sort of like share with friends. Mm-hmm. Even if those friends are non-binary, I think that's that's reasonable because I'm having a day where I'm more towards, um, more away from the masculinity end of the spectrum. But I'll have other days where I don't feel super uncomfortable. I'll just be like wearing a little bit of makeup and otherwise rock a beard and feel like I'm 
comfortable because I have so much privilege, but also because I haven't had a hard day. Yeah, and I I have that too. Sometimes I love my my eyeliner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, my our <laughs> has just been coined guy liner. I don't know why Which we need to, to me, add that that right, term, but right. I know it's commonly called guy liner. Um, one of my favorite has become sparkles in my beard. I love. Awesome. Sparkles in my beard, and I did manage to find a biodegradable sparkle seller. Amazing! So I don't feel bad about contributing to a non-biodegradable <laughs> content, um, <laughs> and that sounds really hipsterish when I say it. But that's still amazing. I, I was nice. having the same thought. I was like, I need to get this hookup on beard glitter, but also um, beard chalk. Have you heard about beard chalk? I have used beard chalk. Amazing! So I have beard chalk. I haven't used it yet. I haven't like been bold enough to use it yet, but I have. Uh, I have beard chalk and I also have the like the skin cleaner that goes with it for like afterwards so I don't stain my skin blue. I have this I begun to go salt and pepper in my beard. Not on okay. my head luckily. Mm-hmm. It my head's mm-hmm. just receding. But my beard yeah. is beginning to go beginning to go salt and pepper, which actually makes the sparkles and color more effective. That's cool. So it's it's uh the irony of that I am aging. Mm-hmm. But in my aging I'm able to be more bold. Right. <laughs> I think that's actually a common thing where people talk about as they get older, caring less about what other people think and being more of who they are, regardless of where they fall in the gender spectrum. I used to care a great deal about what people thought. Yeah. I have since learned that it's not worth the effort or time. Oh. People who like me will like me. People who won't, won't. As long as I'm not being a mean human sure. being. As long as you're in line with your values. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm getting there. I'm not quite there. I still care a lot about what people think, which is not ideal when you're a public figure because you're always going to have pushback and you're always going to have negativity, and that's okay. It's just hard to cope with some days. phrase I learned that helped me a great deal was um, love recklessly mm-hmm. and do no harm. Mm-hmm. And that if I am doing no harm and I am loving recklessly, mm-hmm. time sucks sometimes, but generally it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. And the overall will be successful. And it is. I've had very much up and down um, relationships and intimacy in various levels over the years. But overall, I can't say I've ever done something I would re- I would undo. Sure. Wow. That that's really amazing. I mean, I'm trying to think back about things I regret in terms of relationships. I don't think there's anything I'd undo. It helps us grow in many ways. Absolutely. I know some people out there had to go through hell, and in many ways. They probably shouldn't have had to. Oh, I mean, like I've been, I've been on the receiving end of some pretty emotionally abusive relationships. At least, at least one or two. I, I shouldn't say some, but like a couple. And it's interesting because I that you mentioned emotional abuse because mm-hmm. that is something that I recently had to come to terms with. Mm-hmm. And looking, trying to look up abuse resources for men can be very frustrating. Yeah. And when it does come up, it primarily takes the form of physical. Mm-hmm. Uh, physical or sexual Ooh, I um, down. versus um, we don't hear a lot about emotional or if we do it's um, in very extreme ways versus there's not a lot of resources for the subtlety whereas the only time I found a very um, a strong well-worded in-depth article on emotional abuse in a broader sense and even mm-hmm. in the, the more detailed sense was from a poly uh, amorous blog uh, and I right. say blog loosely because it is actually essays <laughs> these are very very long um, one or two of them actually border on on dissertation level wow. size like these are wow. I say blog very loosely in this sense because this Got this you. person this collection of people that's not one 
yeah. um, has very successfully created a resource. That's fantastic. That I was unable to find anywhere else. I will get you to share that with me so I can share it with the listeners. Absolutely. I also wanted to mention that I have from community a fantastic set of resources for trans and non-binary folks, but also for queer and just various gender sexuality mixes. So essentially for people who aren't cis straight, there are tons of resources on what emotional abuse can look like and Mm -hmm. what physical abuse can look like and how to be safe in those situations, how to have safe relationships and how to get out of those situations. It does tend to creep on you versus some very overt forms. Yeah. Many many of the official emotional sides, they creep. And, and there's this way of realize it. I couldn't agree more. There's this way of normalizing it in the person who's being abused, not just the behavior, but normalizing the the rationale, normalizing the sense of you deserve this because mm-hmm. and this acceptance, whether it's through someone manipulating your pa- like your history with abuse, if you've had abusive parents, it's, I, mean, I think most or, or I should I shouldn't say most. I don't want to shit on parents, um, but. But I think a lot of folks that I know have some experience with abuse, either from a partner or a parent. And if you have abuse as a, as a history, like with a previous partner or a parent, it's really easy to manipulate that. And so I have definitely had the experience where, uh, where a partner definitely manipulated stuff that had happened in the past in such a way as to normalize continuing that abuse with me. And sim- are similarly using your our personal experiences as a justification of mm-hmm. outward mm-hmm. and that sure you and can't saying, control what's happened to you yeah you can't control necessarily how you're feeling mm-hmm. but we are in control of how we react yeah and that's why those coping mechanisms are so important because when you get to that moment yeah without recognizing it, it can be very difficult um last week i had a moment where i begun to swing down and mm-hmm. I have not had this experience much in my life. I have not ex- have a great deal of experience with depression, thank- thankfully. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I started to swing down. And it bothered me that my partner did not recognize that I was swinging down and I was suddenly becoming quiet mm-hmm. and check on me. Mm-hmm. Because I'm the kind of person that outwardly checks con- sometimes too much, I think. Sure. But it is and it is has been noted that I, sh- I do need to give more space sometimes. And mm-hmm. that's a thing on me that I've had to grow with. But that bothered me. I recognize that this is not their fault. Mm-hmm. I was unable in that moment to verbalize mm-hmm. that I was having a problem. That you had needs, that you wanted yeah. support. And I was upset. But if I had not learned those coping mechanisms, I could very easily have lashed out and been yeah. angry. Sure. And I am lucky in the sense that I have, over my years, learned these coping mechanisms to recognize myself and avoid those as much as humanly possible. Oh, I, I feel you. I'm eternally grateful to my father for never hitting my mother. Mm. They, they got into some nasty arguments and like my mother would throw dishes sometimes and like, I mean, and she was occasionally physically abusive, but at no point did my father ever hit her and it never, it never modeled that that behavior is okay for me. So even amidst emotionally abusive relationships, I was never physically abusive. Um, to the best of my knowledge, to the best of my memory, zero percent. So, that's positive. That's one takeaway. Yes. That's like this could have been a lot worse. You you always want to avoid recreating what was done to you. Yeah. I don't think emanating or emulating. I apologize. Yeah. Um, emulating any form of abuse, of course, is going to go well. Yeah. And that is, I think, a lot of people struggle with that, and myself included. Yeah. Um, Though I never myself was really subject to physical abuse or, or that at home, the expectations of me 
and what was done between my parents at times was quite rough. Yeah. And that's watching my brother um, spiral into some very destructive tendencies, especially as a uh, older teen, young adult. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched everything go to hell. Right. Which probably is what helped me not go down a similar path because mm. my brother got the, he got the first wave and I was younger. So I just, I was still happy to go lucky when that stuff happened. So watching my father spiral, watching my brother spiral showed me that these things are not good or right. helpful. Right. That these aren't like adaptive or functional coping strategies or behaviors. And you didn't want to model those. You didn't want to embody those. And though I was far from a healthy 18, 19 year old male, <laughs> absolutely far from it, I didn't embody certain aspects that would have act would have caused far more strife. Right. Had I, I likely wouldn't have my wife and how wonderful she is. Yeah. I highly doubt she would have stuck with me had I embodied much of what I learned right. by, a, by observation. And so that's, of course, given me a very stable um, life at home. Awesome. That's great. Circling back to what we were talking about, because that's such a great bookend to that, that thread. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about taking up space and, and reasons for why we're in these spaces. And if the space is dedicated for POCs to be, um, you know, recovering from, from racialization or racism or other forms of trauma that are race related, for me to go in there, um, you know, as a light-skinned mixed race person, yeah, I'm a POC. I'm not indigenous or black, but I am a POC. Um, it's totally fine for me to be, I think, in those spaces so long as I'm being supportive and or discussing things that are directly related to those issues and speaking from my personal lived experience. But that doesn't necessarily mean I need that space. Some days I might more than others. And that was that was the example I was giving in terms of um, being in non-binary spaces. Mm-hmm. If I've had a really hard day, if I have that lived experience of like, I really feel, you know, unseen as you know, the non-binary portions of my gender. I feel really um, like, like people have said some really nasty things to me about um, wearing makeup or this or that. Cause <laughs> yeah, yeah, you hear, you, you hear all kinds of interesting stuff. Um, but to be honest, 99% of people are highly supportive in Vancouver at the very least, which is great. So a lot of the time I don't have that lived experience of that discrimination and I don't need to be in those spaces and I'm totally comfortable um, not taking up that space and even um, for most intents and purposes, just saying, yeah, I'm, 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 I would never say I'm straight. I'm definitely queer, but, <laughs> but I would say, you know, like, sure, you can count me as a cis man who wears makeup if that's, you know, useful. Cause it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, if it's not particularly useful for me to say, I'm definitely non-binary, I, I, I don't need to make a struggle about it. However, when I'm talking to cis folks, sometimes when I'm talking to cis straight men specifically, sometimes I'm pretty insistent that I'm, that I'm non-binary just because I want to be very clear that, I have behaviors and um, I and experiences of gender that are very different um, from the typical cis het, you know, dude bro. So I, I want it acknowledged by some people more than others, as interesting as that is. Have you had a similar experience? In a sense that I am very much like I'm I'm Danish by mm-hmm. descent, um, and although my family came here in the '60s, mm-hmm. so we're a very young Canadian family. Sure, um, Denmark does not have a huge history of, colon- of colonization um, or, or atrocities. Like we're, we're lower on the list of European countries. Got you. So I don't, I never grew up with the, that kind of that overarching, um, sh- like that shame of what my history is. Um, and Didn't you say you were part British? Very low, very <laughs> low. I actually don't 
have much connection to that side of the family. Sure. And we don't really, we're, we're not really sure what part of Britain. Sure. It's kind of a weird... I'm also part British, which is the only reason I'm giving you shit for it. <laughs> That's fine. There is definitely that aspect, but there's none of that in my family. Like, my family is culturally Danish. Got you. We came from Copenhagen. Got you. Um, so... So it's a pretty direct link. Yeah. Oh, very much so. My name, you can find my name in records on stones. Like, cool. we, we've tracked, my grandfather's very interested, he tracked. So, and we came to Canada very freshly. That is a really neat heritage to have. It is. And it's, that's why when I say, yeah, my blood has some British in it, but when we actually look at um, Anglo-Saxon blood, we're all a little everything. Sure. So, uh, sure. <laughs> that sure. area got very muddled over history. So, um, but my family was very co- um, Danish. Mm-hmm. And um, when we came here, I don't, I don't feel a lot or I don't like a lot of things that occur in that benefit me I feel all of the privilege right I benefit from almost everything I am white I am a a stronger larger male Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I present very well in just to meet the the quote-unquote expectations of what I of what I should be by culture and society so I don't get the negative very often Mm -hmm. I just want to throw out there like for folks that don't fully grasp why being a larger male is helpful when someone attempted to sexually assault me who has who has assigned female at birth she was not quite able to overpower me in in high school but it was it was it was close so it's like that's an example of privilege (laughs) that is an example like a real outcome example of how a situation that could have felt really helpless a situation that could have felt really humiliating that i could have felt a lot of shame about instead i felt shaken but okay Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's a huge, like the, de- the deflection and outcome there from, you know, I, I had had a lot of testosterone as a, you know, like growing 16, 17 year old boy, man. Mm-hmm. And I was starting to grow muscles and I was starting to gain strength that just that, that she essentially hadn't. Yeah. And it, it does think about, I've been told I'm, I'm intimidating. Which mm-hmm. I always found mm-hmm. humorous because I'm I'm a teddy bear. I as much as all my fighting is, <laughs> sure. I do not like hurting people. Mm-hmm. I like sport fighting. I like that. Yeah, that the like, competitive space. and like yeah. that fun sort of like community almost. Yeah, I hate hurting people. It bothers me when my wife can't open the jar of pickles I just closed because I have had a habit of years of overclosing jars, and multiple partners in my life um, have had this experience. Uh, segue to a very funny story shortly, but I went to a partner's house, cooked her dinner, left. My wife later had dinner, the next week had dinner at that same partner's house, just as friends, and they went to open the jar and couldn't, and they're wondering, (laughs) how did this get closed so tight? And then both of them looked at each other and went, Kyle was here. (laughs) And it it was funny, but I don't really think about my strength, because it's something that's natural. Mm -hmm. Um... It's something you're just used to. It's what feels normal for your body. Very much. Feels like your usual. Yeah. Very much. And I can grab the tailgate of a truck and lift it. Like Really? It, I am. When I say I'm strong, my wife says you're intimidating. I don't click, but the numbers do speak. I have a very strong, what we, the joke, the, the Viking strength. Got you. <laughs> I am very much that way. And sure. people don't talk back to me in some ways. Got you. And it actually, I don't like that. That's one of the aspects that's destructive. That right. when I say something, people like to just, okay. But then you don't get the feedback. You don't get the growth. Exactly. And it, it, it's likely because there is this fear of men that has been um, built through misogyny and patriarchy and these, these destructive systems. And it hurts me 
mm-hmm. in huge ways because people aren't going to be as honest with me as I want them to be. And I am not violent right. outside of a sport. Or a kink context. Right? <laughs> or the sure. kink concept. Yeah, exactly. So I, outside of those, I'm not going to be that way in any sense of the word. Sure. And that has hurt over the my growth. It's probably one of the reasons why I reached most of my adulthood without having those issues. Interesting. Like you, you reached your adulthood without having those issues, but also you, you reached your adulthood without having a lot of challenge about, say, feminism. Mm-hmm. I was always right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was always right because when I said something, people didn't want to say anything back. Right. Which made, which gave this false illusion. Mm-hmm. And it took some very strong, mostly female professors, though there were some male professors that challenged me in the same way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, in that space where they knew they could challenge me. Right. Because they had the microphone. They were at the front of the class. They had some authority that could challenge mm-hmm. essentially this natural, quote unquote, authority that you had been granted by society's views of people and their backgrounds. Yeah. And that it, that is a destructive sense yeah. for men. And especially as a white male, there, there is, whenever we look at a microphone, it almost always looks like me. Right. When I look up at a pedestal, when there is a speech, when there is an educator, when there is something, nine times out of ten, it's a version of myself. Right. And that creates a false sense of truth. Right. A sense that, that all truth is your truth. Yes. And it takes, things like TED Talks are fantastic this way because even if it is still majority white on there, there is a vast list of people who aren't mm-hmm. and there are some videos that i use in class constantly to break this down well there's like kimberly crenshaw as well mm-hmm. and the danger of a single story where a um where i believe she's Ghanaian, um but she's african lady from one uh, country and she talks about how she's writes stories about tea and biscuits okay. because every book she read was about tea and biscuits she does not eat those she eats mangoes her country Interesting. And that she never wrote about her characters eating mangoes, even though she's basically ate a mango every day of her life. Sure. Because that's what was normal where she was. And that that danger of a single story. Right, because she's now writing for an audience that expects that single story. Exactly. And that that's the expansion of that is that my story became truth. And we're essentially in an, an intellectual Irish potato famine is what I'm hearing. Yes. <laughs> Where, like, you can eat potatoes or try and sell something else and go bankrupt. But everyone's eating potatoes here. Yeah, and that, that's hurtful. And that's what we want to work against. Right. Because it, it does hurt us. Like, having a limited understanding of the world hurts us. Like, that's not a good thing. Yes. Yeah, it creates delusions of grandeur. Which sure. Which I definitely suffered from. Sure. And yeah. centralizing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's, it has never done me good. It's never done me well. Mm-hmm. Um, breaking in or really trying to understand feminism in its core, um, learning what intersectionality was, um, and, under- identity, and understanding that things. it can include men, like understanding that it can well, include, yeah, yeah. It, and certainly class and that men that are poorer certainly suffer based mm-hmm. on not having as much money and the intersection of how elements of masculinity of what a good man should be and poverty, how those two things come together to royally screw over poor men is very interesting and understood by the at least the theory of intersectional feminism whether or not people practice it with an understanding that poverty is significant and that one's education in intersectional feminism is itself a privilege of class well even i mean first wave feminism is probably one of the only feminism that was really purely women sure after that after the first wave it include it started including others the effects started to be seen and the first and 
that's because first wave feminism was basically, hey, us women we, are people too, <laughs> and that was that's yeah. a pretty low bar. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we're 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 still arguing that somewhere, yeah. some places, but it's it's in va- in majority accepted, and we're into third. And I've actually seen the beginning of what they are calling fourth wave feminism, yes. which in, which we the term intersectional feminism would would qualify. It even qualifies as third wave. So second wave would have been the um, abolish the nuclear family, and that was because in the nuclear family at the time, it was the father is the head of the household, Mm -hmm. and women are homemakers. And with third wave feminism, that dropped off. There's no desire to abolish the nuclear family, to my knowledge, in third feminism whatsoever. I looked into it a little bit, and it seems like third third wave feminism is just focused on totally different issues and has no real opinion on the nuclear family, provided that someone isn't being... um, domineering in saying it's my way or the highway in a non-consensual way because obviously third wave feminists would be totally fine with people choosing to reenact 1950s housewife if it was consensual and all that and all the things that we're talking about that hurt me and hurt you and hurt and are considered hurting men sure they stem from the same problem the things that hurt women are different the core when you break down right down to the core causation Mm -hmm. they're the same things the things that tell me that I must be aggressive to be successful right I must be certain things mm-hmm. are the same core beliefs that tell women they need to be something. Right. And so it is a realizing that it's not an us versus them mentality. Right. Absolutely. Um, even even in the courtroom. Shifted me in a huge way. Like the courtroom is a perfect yes. example of how there is a sentencing discrimination against men. That's something we absolutely need to address because the notion that women are helpless or powerless or not aggressive or couldn't possibly be responsible for these crimes is the same notion that they aren't aggressive enough to be CEOs, couldn't possibly be responsible for fiscal growth. Um, all, all of these sorts of ideas that are not supported by research, that are not supported by evidence. And if I say something in criminal sense, I'm typically believed. A lot of things that women say they're not believed or there's excuses and justifications for why they deserved it. And there's a lot of that in the same sense. So yeah, the criminal system is broken. Yeah, I would, I would say (laughs) it's certainly, certainly in terms of um, sexual assault. I don't think it functions. I don't think it functions in a lot of ways. No, I would agree (laughs) with you. Actually, I I don't think it functions in a lot of ways. I just um, recently uh, interviewed someone who's doing an honors in criminology and is Mm -hmm. planning on going on to do a doctorate. And it was really fascinating talking about different, alternative programs for prison and, and how they how prisons could be made more functional but we can get into that in a different mm-hmm. episode I'm interested in talking about the new curriculum around studying indigenous cultures as appreciative rather than appropriative and I'm super interested to hear what you have to say about your efforts in that so I actually have presentations and projects about cultural appropriation as a whole mm-hmm. and what it really comes down to is the problem with people look at appropriation and go, well, why can't I, um, why isn't it appreciative when I wear a headdress or I wear certain things or I do certain things? Why does that, why, what's the line? And a lot of people are unsure about this and it does mostly come down to a power dynamic and understanding what it actually is for. Mm -hmm. The reason it's not okay to wear a feathered headdress is because those feathers have a very deep meaning to certain cultural groups. Now, obviously not every Aboriginal group uses the feathered headdress, but many have other things that are have similar meaning or other symbol symbolism, and it's similar. Mm-hmm. If we just took those and went, hey, look at this thing, it's so cool, I'm gonna wear it and appreciate the culture. No, you're appropriating. You don't understand what that means because if you did, you'd know that you shouldn't wear that. And I think that's, <laughs> I think that's especially for that example, I think the, uh, the war bonnet is one of the more egregious ones because it is an earned thing. It's a mm-hmm. thing that you would wear in a very specific context. It's sort of like, um, like a Pope outfit. Like if, 
if people are wearing a Pope outfit at a Halloween party, for example, I would think that a lot of Catholics would find that very appropriative and would be really upset about it. They, they would. And that's where that power dynamic of, yeah, a, a white Christian might be offended by that. Mm-hmm but it doesn't affect them the same way. That's right. And that's that's a huge aspect of how we explain this because we, where I am, we do have a dominant um, Caucasian um, student body. And so they ask those questions. Why mm-hmm. is that when it happens to me, it's different? Mm-hmm. And th- that is important that when you leave, it doesn't happen on your way home. Right. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen this way. And when we do break it down um, into meaning and effect, we see that there is Domin- there's a dominant level of abuse and hurt sure. to certain groups that others have not experienced. So it, th- doing that is a reminder that that has occurred. Sometimes, sometimes I try and compare it to things like a Victoria Cross medal. Um, if someone has a relative that's died and literally has a Victoria Cross, they died in the war, and all of a sudden someone's wearing this Victoria Cross as a fashion accessory, it could be seen as disrespectful and it could be seen as really not honoring people who literally died for supposedly that person's freedom to... Well, and it's actually it. illegal. Is it you really? You are not allowed to wear a medal you have not earned. You are allowed to... Really? You are allowed to procure it. You're allowed to purchase it. It is illegal to wear a police officer's uniform. It is illegal really? to dress as a soldier and present as a soldier. Um, Why uh, is it illegal for our culture to be appropriated like that, but not for others? Because like the perceived authority. When you, right, okay, that's fair. We yeah, are, okay. are, are police, military, things like that right. are colonial authorities. And right. to imitate that... Challenges that structure. Challenges is it, and that, oh, well, you didn't earn it. And this is how we actually control. Right. So if, we, if everyone just dressed like a Canadian Forces soldier or an RCMP officer, right, you how would you find identify. the real officer? Right. And that upsets the power balance. Right. Because literally at a protest, everyone could dress as RCMP if it weren't illegal. And that would make it very hard to distinguish. Yeah. Could you imagine, uh, of course, not really in the Canadian context would you have this, but if you were in an American context where um, firearms were more common, can you imagine 10,000 people dressed as the local cops all carrying a pistol? Yeah. How would you regulate that? How would you yeah. control it? You could never have that. And so that's a problem. Right. We don't look at, we tend to not look at culturally specific symbolism in a similar sense. Sure. Even though it is very similarly destructive. I find medals interesting though, because dressing as a police officer is understandable, mm-hmm. but wearing a Victoria Cross medal, that's an interesting one. If I were to put a rank that I did not earn right. on my chest, yeah. I can be criminally charged. Right. Like that to me is is nuts. Mm-hmm. So like technically Halloween costumes and things that are soldiers' outfits that do have rank on, on pips and such, that would technically be illegal? Only if they were actually real. Okay. The way, we, the way Halloween gets around it is that they tend to make sensationalized versions or versions that are not authentic. Right. So that, that kind of moves the other way. We, when you, if you were to wear the actual uniform with real ranks sure. and present yourself in the sense like you pretend to be, because mm-hmm. there is that guilty mind, guilty body concept within Canadian law is that you can buy surplus and it's not illegal. But if you act, if you say I'm a soldier, right. now you've broken into the, your intent, your mind and body both are guilty in the sense that you're trying to pretend to be a soldier. Right. And now we've moved into the, le- the illegal part. I see. And medals are the same. You can own a medal. But wearing it is pretending you earned it in a sense. Yes. I see. 
Interesting. And in, a, in the same sort of sense, I would think a war bonnet is showing that you are, and forgive me if I'm getting this horrifically wrong, but essentially a brave on the warpath, if I'm not mistaken. Well, whatever the, the specific culture might award okay, warriors or leaders, totally depending fair. on what it is, that, which group and how they do that, yeah, if you were to wear something that you are supposed to have earned, you are misrepresenting that. Yeah, and I, I think that's a much better way to say groups it. within those cultures, if they were to do it, their culture would be upset with them. I would imagine that because I think that's you, you earn those things on with through a lot of work. You shouldn't just wear them. But society as a whole in Canada does not recognize those awards in the same way as our government's awards. Right. So that's where we start getting differential. I, I like I like that way of looking at it better than what I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is a general the the um, the war bonnet or the the feathered headdress yeah. is the most used. Sure. overused and appropriate image sure um but it's definitely that's only a handful of groups actually use that specifically mm-hmm. um there's a every culture is vastly different and i think of in um in whistler there is the two groups that share a a museum and when walking in is very interesting because one group is more towards the coast salish aspect that when we see it it's recognizable as a coast salish um, art and different styles but the other group that's literally shares that land is just north of them is vastly different mm-hmm. like, like night and day different the way that it's aesthetically done and i think about what that seems like we're always like oh what but it's aboriginal but that's we don't we would look at german and french mm-hmm. and they're very clearly different mm-hmm. but for some reason when it's aboriginal we think it's the same and that we don't give the same concept to aboriginal as we do to other culture to say european like to the notion of the diversity in Europe, we don't give the same diversity in our thoughts. No, and that, that's, again, I know we're driving back here, but that is core to that decolonization aspect. Right. That this is the same. I like that. So when you were talking about a new curriculum, what is the new curriculum like in BC around um, learning about Indigenous or Aboriginal cultures? Well, the new curriculum is fantastic. It empowers educators in a huge way. Um, it's concept-based and big idea-based instead of content-based. So. I could, had I the resources and had I, I knew enough things to cover it all, I could run an entire course with only Aboriginal content. Wow. I'm capable of doing that now. So it's no longer the sense that there is a unit that's a token unit. Oh, we're going to learn about the Aboriginals now. And then right. when we're done that unit, we're going to move on. I could teach the major foundational concepts. With Aboriginal content. With only Aboriginal content if I, if I knew how. Sure. And so... Um, so finding Aboriginal content is right now the biggest struggle. Right. And getting um, resources for it because it is expensive. Sure. This is coming down to, uh, it really is coming down to money. Right. Um, because. And that takes time. Aboriginal artists and authors deserve to be paid like anyone else. Very much so. Yeah. And as much as I love some of the major authors' work, mm-hmm. there are two or three very dominant writers um, in Canada as Aboriginal authors. And they're great, but it'd but, be nice to have more. Right. And that is where we're starting to get some. There's a fantastic graphic novel called Moonshot. And they have two volumes now. And they are Aboriginal graphic novel artists and writers. Cool. And a medium that is very not, very dominated through by not Aboriginal individuals. Right. And I have heard that there is Haida graphic art now. That's like a graphic novel, but done with Haida style art. 
that would be interesting to see. I, I would imagine it's it could like I don't there's no reason why it wouldn't be a thing. I want to um, say it was either I was at ConvergeCon a couple years back. I was teaching um, like a BDSM 101 panel, and I think Dr. Kim Tallbear was the was the the keynote speech. And either that year oh, it was it was either Dr. Tallbear or it was Janet Rogers, who's um, a poet from Vancouver Island. Mm -hmm. um, she did a presentation that was really cool. It's like people tell you that spoken word is really different in person but like really really different like it's hard to put into words how different because i bought her book but like mm -hmm. reading her book i was like oh this is this isn't the same <laughs> i'd much rather um have paid for like a youtube series or like mm -hmm. just just some version where i could see the life that that she puts into her content there is something about um an oral presentation in person even recordings don't do it yeah and that is actually as we're talking about the how we do it this is part of it the oral presentation culture of Abor of many Aboriginal groups yeah. is one of the aspects we're focusing on. So we get students up and talking and mm -hmm. telling stories mm -hmm. and we tell, we get them to tell me a story and then, okay, now how can you make that um, more interesting? Sure. Because most people who learn, who are good storytellers did not start good storytellers. No, they learned they it. They learned it and you learn by doing. And it is a, here's some major techniques, tell me a story. Hmm. Okay. How can we make this better? And then you start going into symbolism and ideologies and um, poetic devices and literary devices, and we begin to grow into something. And I uh, received permission um, by by learning to tell Raven and the Sun story. Um, as an educator, I, I worked with a gentleman, and he over the time said, "You know, I'd love for you to tell that story." And I love. I'm so glad I got that permission. It's one of my favorite stories when Raven stole the Sun, and. Would you be interested in perhaps teaching that story? Not to me, I just mean um, telling that story here as an extension of your teaching that story. If that's yeah. something that you feel falls within the purview of. If you'd like me to, I'd be happy to do it. It is my version. Okay. Uh, or it is the version I've been taught because obviously there's a lot of versions for every story. Sure. Um, but I'd be happy to tell the story if you'd like for that. It is how it's done, the gestures, the voice, um, and the kids love it. They, sure. they think they, they're not used to hearing these stories in person because in the West, we tend to read stories. Mm -hmm. We don't stand up and we tell them and we orate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge injustice because yeah. there is a ton of stories that are far better told. I completely um, agree. And I'm sure both of us have some D&D &D experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. And you can't recount some of those stories easily. It's like some people can. Some people have the storytelling, you know, the GMs and such, um, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And then other players will be like, there was this one time this amazing thing happened, period. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, this it's is not a story. Enough. And yeah. on podcasting, it's one, probably one of the reasons why D&D podcasting has become so popular. Because there is a storytelling aspect of it that is huge. And my, some of my students have actually done this as projects. Cool. Podcast the D&D session storytelling and focusing on that. And some have done fantastic job not everyone does a fantastic job but some of them have done jobs that were far above and beyond expectations and it, it's amazing when you empower students to look at something and do it in a way that interests them mm -hmm. in that there is no difference between students play D&D &D and podcasting a story and a student writing me a story right it, it's a different way of expressing it but they are still telling a story right and if they're interested just like people if people are interested they're going to listen, yeah. which is one of the core reasons why I think the Aboriginal stories are done a huge injustice by being recorded and written about in the Western way. 
because they lose the power they have. And of the few times I have been invited into longhouses and been able to listen to um, mm -hmm. masters speak, um, there is there's no words. I can't recreate that. In fact, there's one coming up at VPL that I'm going to where there's an indigenous storyteller in VPL, like in-house, that comes in, mm -hmm. which is super cool. It's, it is. And it's that the danger that that could be lost through colonization, through the, the cultural genocide, yeah. and that we are attempting to repair, though whether that's being successful or done well or not is definitely up for debate. And also seem to be continuing to do damage as within a certain camp. Yes, we're supposed to be reconciling. It's, we can argue at the end it's probably not happening the way it should, but it's supposed to be happening. We can't lose that yeah. because it is something that is so important and core and getting that point across that, yes, people wrote stories. Great. Mm -hmm. Why don't, why haven't we talked about how women wrote the, wrote the earliest novels, how science fiction was wrote by, uh, by Dr. Cavendish, um, who was also one of the first to talk about an out of body experience in the Western sense and began poly or had the first, as far as I'm aware, written polyamorous experience in novelization. Really? And we just don't talk about her. I had no idea. She quite literally invented sci-fi. And we don't talk about her. We talk about others that are often a hundred or more years after the fact. Really? And This is all new information <laughs> to me because yeah, I, I grew up on sci-fi <laughs> with quote-unquote the big three, which is to say the three white guys that talked about it, which were um, Heinlein, um, Clark, and um, Asimov. Absolutely. Yeah. And those Asimov, are the ones you hear about. Asimov's concept of um, the three road laws of robotics and the singularity are very similar to Cavendish's concept. Really? And not, though not to say that Asimov was inspired by, sure. there are some similarities that show at the very least a similar train of thought. Sure. But we don't talk about her. Well, we d I do. Sure. And watching young women who have mostly read male writers, or if they read women's writers, it tends to be romance. Reading about these, uh, this woman who wrote very powerful um, metacognitive astral concepts in the 1700s sure. is, there's, it, at times you see an awakening and that they, mm -hmm. they realize that, they, that there's more out there and that this has been done. Right. It, it's not groundbreaking because I think sometimes when we look at, oh, I have to fight for something. It's daunting. Not everyone wants to be the face. No, everyone wants to be the groundbreaker of a new area. And it's okay to not want to be mm -hmm. that person that breaks the mold. But the mold has actually been broken a long time ago. Sure. Someone just kept gluing the pieces back together, trying to build the wall back. <laughs> and that's, that's the part that we're trying to get rid of is that yeah. no, let's just stop rebuilding the wall. Yeah. I like it. Awesome. So it sounds like there is a lot of hope in terms of the curriculum, at least. Um, Hopefully. <laughs> I, was, I was having a conversation about change that I was seeing during West Coast Bound. I was on um, the first ever um, people of color panel. It was called When the Outside Impacts the Inside, um, like discussing race and bias in, in kink community. I had been saying that I, I was holding out some hope. And um, one of the other panelists mentioned within the context of being like a two-spirit indigenous person that they were not seeing the change that I was talking about. And it gave me a great opportunity, like being almost called out like that publicly gave me the great opportunity of being able to say, 
POC literally just means like racialized. It just means not white, not not racialized, which means literally everything else. <laughs> and my experience isn't going to be the same as someone who's indigenous or someone who's black or someone who's a different flavor of Asian <laughs> than I am. Or You know what I mean? Like there's just, there's such a diversity of voices and stories. And the fact that I was, that I was born here, that I am close enough to white passing that in some instances, people think I might be Greek or Mediterranean mm. rather than part Indian. Um, that that is just a whole different story. That's a whole different experience. And if I'm seeing progress, it doesn't mean that other folks are going to be seeing progress. So it was it was really neat to have the experience of of being able to say like, yeah, don't take don't take my voice as the as the POC voice because um, it's it's easier to do that with the more privileged among the marginalized. And the fact that I have such um, you know light skin is is privilege. It's not the same thing as being white because when people say things that are racist, it impacts me in a much more visceral, personal um, way because it is about me. Mm -hmm. However, people may not see me as a person of color sometimes and that's a huge privilege. Like that gives me an in where certain jobs won't discriminate against me, you know, in a way that they will for others and certain social situations like you were talking about being big and intimidating and how that changes the way people um, talk to you and interact with you. It's the same thing with being a POC. Sometimes it changes things. And for me, sometimes it doesn't. Well, I think about sometimes the way when we talk about when did women gain the vote? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's just wrong because white women gained the vote. Right. And In a specific year. <clears throat> and then Exactly. And then the, the other various groups came after. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was quite distant. Mm -hmm. And that that's often the... We see the change in the least marginalized first. Right. And it slowly and sometimes way too slowly makes its way to the the groups that are more marginalized when in reality that's the group that should be f getting larger hunks because they're the ones being affected in often very larger ways mm -hmm. um, and that is one of the focuses is trying to show look women gained the vote but not really right white women gained the vote so this group took till here this group took till here this group took till here but you know, in the Aboriginal sense, it's Aboriginals got the vote here, except if they married another Aboriginal, it took longer. Sure. If they married a white man, they would um, they would lose their, or they would maintain their status. But if a man married a white woman, they would lose it. It's and various so aspects convoluted. like that. It's absolutely convoluted. And that those details are important. I can't remember who it was that made this observation. But, I mean, I grew up in a family that was steeped in colonialism. Um, my father was um, Canadian, born in Vancouver, um, and his father was Canadian, born in Vancouver. And his father had gone back to Britain to get a quote-unquote like British wife. So as a result, he was culturally and ethnically mostly British, even though he was he was very much um, uh, a, a settler in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Like he was mostly of the Vancouver culture rather than the British one. But he he had both. Mm -hmm. um, for I'm sorry, I'm split between my attention split right now because I want to mention all these dates. So I'm going to rattle them off pretty quick. So in Canada, we actually like um, black men were apparently given the right to vote in 1837, but black women were not given the right to vote until 1960. Whereas women in Canada, white women specifically, were about 1910, 50 years earlier. Yeah, it is a huge discrepancy in who got the vote when. Yeah. And it is that's evident that's the evidence for how messed up our system is yeah i agree what was i saying about culture i was saying something about 
oh yeah, that my family was steeped in colonial culture, right? So sometimes mm -hmm. I still say problematic things and like um, there was a lot of essentially racist um, ideas in my family, shocking, I know, um, mm -hmm. but, but racist ideas that came out of that framework um, and that came out of the Catholic Church as well, probably, um, which my family was also highly affiliated with. And I learned a lot of very racist things about Aboriginal folks and about my relationship to this land and my relationship to the hosts, essentially, willing or unwilling. Um, probably more the second one. Yeah. <laughs> and when I say unwilling, <laughs> I mean on the receiving side of genocide, but... Yeah, yeah. it was... <clears throat> Excuse me. No, you're good, you're good. Yeah, no, it definitely... <laughs> a lot of bad things happened, and we're still feeling the effects, and... Yeah. I know I have a lot of things I've ingrained that I've had to yeah. work through yeah. and I'm still working through. Yeah. And I do catch myself at times where I say something and I'm lucky that my wife will very directly be like, that sounds a little wrong. And <laughs> do you want to try that a second time? Yeah. And it is. Yeah. It's often a, oh, you know what? Yeah, that was totally not okay. That was a reaction. And I know I learned and I, I say the same thing that our initial reaction yeah. is our learned reaction. Yeah. We, we, initially have a re a reflexive mm -hmm. a reflex action and so that's the learned yeah it's what you do at that moment that matters i think so some people will immediately give their their reflex others will say it and go oh no i i take that back that was not what i meant and others will will stop and go that's the not okay thing yeah and i do share with my students that in my early 20s yeah around 21 i was walking and there were two large black men walking and i crossed the street and it is the largest point of shame in my life because I knew better. But growing up, when I saw a black man on TV, it was he was either a comedian or he was a gangster. It was Chris Rock, um, Dave Chappelle, or it was the guy with his pants down shooting cops. That right. was, because where I'm from, though there is uh, a small, it's growing, there's quite a few now, but when I was young, there wasn't a large black population. Yeah. So my experience formed a reflexive action. Right. And that was so unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And that's the point when I had to acknowledge myself and go, right. no, I need to be better than that. Right. Because obviously they would have noticed. Like people see well, when you cross the street. <laughs> guaranteed. And yeah. I, I know that in someone's mind, I am a terrible human being. Possibly. And in that scenario, I would not hold, that's justified to think that, yeah. that this is someone who holds severe racism. Yeah. And because how would they know elsewise, otherwise? And yeah. in truth, in that moment, I was. Yeah. And I think it's okay to own parts of our story we're not proud of and learn from that. And it's something I do share with my, my younger students because they need to know that even when you do something wrong, that doesn't inherently make you bad. It makes you bad if you don't fix it. Right. Yes. Yeah. The story, the story of our lives. Yes, very much so. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving your time and your knowledge. I, I very much appreciate hearing about other experiences of decolonization and, and what that can look like. I'm still very much always looking for new ideas and, and suggestions. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So I, in my class, when I tell this story, I always start with that I am not original. This is not my story. 
I have been taught this by some of the educators at the Cocoa Beach Education Center. And as an educator, I asked if it'd be okay if I told this story. They worked me through a few things, went over a couple protocols to make sure I understood these things, and that I acknowledged that. So before I do anything else and tell the story of how the Ravens told the sun, I want to thank the educators at the Cocalitza Education Center and acknowledge that the people that taught me this story are an unceded territory, um, primarily the Stolo in Sumas uh, region. So long time ago, everything was dark. There was no light. Raven did not like this because he found himself running into trees a great deal and hated it. Eventually, he landed on a, on a branch to take a break, looked over and saw this splinter of light and thought, whoa, light. And he went over and he creeped in and there was this wooden longhouse with a crack in one of the wood, uh, planks of wood. And he le leaned his eye in and looked and saw inside a large man. And he was holding all the light of the world in his hands. And he placed that light inside a box, which he then placed inside another box, which he then placed inside a third and fourth. And he continued this over many boxes for security. He also knows there was a young woman there who was speaking to her or speaking to this man. And he identified or she identified him as her father. He said, Father, why do you keep all the light of the world for yourself? Could we not share it with everyone else so that everything wasn't dark? And he replied that, no, it is mine. It is my right. It is my property. This, all the lights of the world belong to me. She was upset with her father, took the bucket near her and said, I'm getting some water. Raven pulled back into a tree to watch and she stepped through the wood out to the river that was nearby and began getting water. He saw an opportunity. So he turned himself into a thistle, fell into the water and flew into the bucket when she drank the water she fell into or he fell into her belly which then he formed into a baby she was overjoyed the man was overjoyed at the idea of a grandson and she birthed this strange baby with a long curved nose that whenever he cried sounded like a this horrible cawing cry and he never ceased this young baby boy just endlessly to the old man's frustration and the uh, the boy would reach for the old man's book or his boxes and he thought okay you know what if he keeps him quiet he pulls the first box out and gives him the largest the baby boy plays with the box for a while happy and the man and his daughter are, are happy to have silence eventually the baby gets bored and asks for another one and another and another Till finally he gives him the last box and holds all the light of the world in his hands. And the baby looks at the light and reaches for it. And he says, no, I love you, my grandson, but all the light of the world is mine. The daughter, angry at her father, says, you're a fool of an old man. The baby wants the light to be quiet. And she grabs the light and hands it to him. Not at that moment, the baby turns back into Raven and carries in its, in its claws up the chimney all the light of the world. Now at this point, Raven is actually white. The soot of it going up the fireplace turns it black. The man, enraged, transforms into eagle and gives chase. All across the land, over great distances, eagle chases Raven. No, Raven knows that he can't win this. He's just trying to outlast eagle. 
During this chase, he smashes the light of the world into a mountain, carving off a piece, a whole bunch of tiny specks of dust and one large piece that would become the stars and the moon. And he saw water and thought, ah, I can lose him in the ocean. And he goes and goes far and flies fast. And Eagle eventually tires and turns around and heads back. But Raven, before he's able to find land, tires and drops the light of the world. And the moment the light of the world touches the ocean, the first horizon and sunrise occurs. And all the light of the world begins rising around it, giving us daylight. And this is the story of how Raven stole the light. Thank you very much. That was taught to me by the educators at Coakley Education Center in Chilliwack. And again, I'd like to acknowledge that this is not my story. It is from the Stolo on unceded territory in the Sumas region. Thank you. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimateinteractions or directly on patreon.com slash victorsalmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com, so what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.